I'm Dr. Rose Aslan, and I'm a transformational life coach, breathwork teacher, and scholar of religion who supports helpers, rebels, misfits, marginalized, and spiritual and spiritually curious folks. Welcome to Rahma Throws, where I create a bold space of warmth, understanding, and pluralism in a world that often feels chaotic, polarized, and judgmental. You are not alone, and the stories I share here will reinforce this. Each episode will delve into inspiring stories, practical tips, and thought-provoking and heartfelt conversations with thought leaders, healers, coaches, mental health professionals, and other individuals who are part of the quiet revolution of women healing around the world. So join me on this podcast exploration as we explore what happens when we allow compassion into our lives one story at a time. Welcome to Rahma with Rose. One topic I talk a lot about in my coaching work, in my work with clients, in my own personal life is embodiment. And I speak about it so much because this has been one of the most key components for my personal healing journey. And I can't stop talking about it with everyone I meet. Being present within our bodies is a gift that most people don't seem to have. I know I didn't have it until a few years ago. And when I started to understand what embodiment is and to experience it myself, everything started to change. So I'm just going to take some time today to talk about embodiment, what it is, what somatic work is, and how it affected me in my life and how it might even help you in your life. Especially when embedded within the context of Islam as a religion, as a practice. Islam is an orthopraxic religion as well as orthodox, but Islam really is orthopraxic, which means a religion that follows a certain set of practices as well as beliefs. Islam is a very embodied religion. It's just that Muslims are often taught to see it that way. Now, Muslims who pray and who follow Islamic ritual are moving their bodies because they've been taught that way. But are they actually understanding and experiencing what it means to move your body as a way to remember and to praise God? Most aren't. So I want to talk about my embodiment journey and then how that fits into my identity and practice as a Muslim and how it might impact your life as well. Now, as I've discussed before, for many years, I was an academic and a professor, and I was a person of the mind. I loved reading and writing and thinking and analyzing and deconstructing and spending a lot of time understanding text, understanding films, deconstructing them to understand their perspective, what they had to offer, and putting them in dialogue with other scholars, with other primary sources. A lot of time reading medieval Arabic texts, Persian texts, 
really beautiful historical texts, mystical texts, poetry, literature, philosophy, theology. I spent a lot of time reading a lot of books, a lot of manuscripts, a lot of different forms of text, and then writing my analysis of them. Where was I during that time? During those years as an academic, as a student, graduate student, then professor, I lived in my mind. I was neglecting my personal well-being. My health was pretty poor during those years. I fed my mind well. I had good conversations with people. I read good books. Personal life wasn't so great. I was in a marriage that drained me, that sucked all my life energy, and I didn't even know why. I always was tired, and I couldn't focus. That's for another story. But as much as academia and being intellectual fed me and nourished me and nourished my mind, there's something missing that I didn't realize. That was being in my entire body and not just my mind. Now, academics, we treasure our minds. We praise other people for their intelligence. They're always competing with one another to show who's smarter, who can name drop more scholars, more theories. That was tiring for me. I kept up in academia because I have really strong grit, really strong willpower, not because I was the smartest person in the room. Kept up because I couldn't quit. I wouldn't let myself quit. I worked a lot more than other people, perhaps. And I think my work was really inefficient, too. So maybe that's why I worked more. I didn't have good focus, organization. I didn't feel good physically. And all that led to me using my time inefficiently when I was in academia. Because I just thought if I worked harder, if I read more, if I just spent more time on a computer, my work would be better. What I didn't realize is that if I spent time taking care of other parts of my life, especially my body, maybe that would, that would help me actually succeed, have better focus, feel better have clearer thinking, and so on. So the process began, I remember that when I left my ex-husband, I was so lost and devastated having to transition to being a full-time single mother. He quickly moved across the country. I had to do everything on my own, a long commute. I was exhausted. My son was very young. He was a toddler in preschool when I became a single mother. I was burnt out beyond comprehension. And I didn't understand why. I didn't know the solution. I did start with a therapist a couple years before I left my ex-husband. That did help. But therapy was talk therapy. It was conventional talk therapy. It helped me understand my thought process, but didn't go beyond that. One of the most powerful experiences I had when I became a single mother was taking a self-defense class at my local martial arts studio. And I started to um, learn some self-defense techniques, but a large part of it was kickboxing. And I just remember we'd go around kicking with our, with our punches, with our arms and wrists, and with our legs, the big punching bags. And it felt so good to let out my anger and frustration and grief on that punchy bag. It felt amazing. I didn't understand why. I didn't understand the psychology behind it. I just know how cathartic it felt, how amazing I felt in that martial arts studio. That was really opening for me. I remember then sometime around that time, I also started with a somatic therapist who was such a gift to me in my life. I'm still so grateful and occasionally I'm still in touch with her. 
she opened me up to the possibilities of understanding my body, being in touch with my body, letting my body express itself. Now, it might seem silly because a lot of people are already very in touch with themselves and their bodies without thinking about it. But in my case, I was really suppressed. I didn't dance. I hardly did exercise at this point. I mainly sat at my desk. I went for walks occasionally. I mainly sat at my desk and did my work my, at my office or at my home. I didn't know much about my body except that it was often in pain. It didn't serve me well. And I didn't know how to take care of it well. Yeah, I had a good diet relatively. I've been a vegetarian for most of my life. I had a decent diet. Probably not as good as it could have been. But I wasn't truly taking care of it. I didn't understand what it meant to be my body. I remember she would ask me to do things like roar, yell, or move my body in a way that could express inner feelings. God, that was hard. That was really, really hard for me. I didn't... Moving felt so uncomfortable to me. I think that as a Muslim, especially when I was quite conservative and wore very modest clothing, very loose clothing, they would hide my body so no one could objectify me, as I like to say, but also because I could hide my body and hide even my connection to it. I always avoided dancing, even if I went to a women's section of a wedding where all the women were dancing. I always refused. I said, I can't dance. And I never had the confidence to learn. I don't know why I thought dancing was impossible for me. My whole entire life. I remember trying dancing out when I was a kid, maybe in middle school, high school. I might have gone to a couple of dances, but I was so embarrassed by my inability to dance. It's funny because I think I remember in high school, I was learning how to swing dance. And I used to take lessons. But somewhere along the way, I think when I came into Islam and was connected and deeply enmeshed with my ex-husband, I lost all connection. And the sense of embodiment was lost during all those years. Because clearly I had a little bit more when I was younger, before him. And so the path to embodiment for me was the healing from that very difficult and abusive marriage. Healing from the shame that I experienced, that I embodied, or that I was inculcated within me when I became Muslim. And not just Muslim, it wasn't Islam that did this to me. It was certain kinds of Muslim perspectives and viewpoints that really I find were very damaging to me. That women should not be seen, should not be heard. Our bodies are shameful, therefore we have to cover because of the shame associated with our bodies, our voices. Everything about us is shameful, therefore let's just ignore and hide away our bodies, ourselves. So there's a lot more depth to unpack here, but just you get the sense of what I was struggling with and what I had to work through in my healing journey. So when I was working with my somatic therapist, like I said, she would have me role play, reenact inner emotions through my body, and it felt so awkward. Slowly, I began to understand it more, and slowly I began to do more things that felt really good. Now I've been doing yoga, and I used to go to the gym. You know, it's not like I neglected my body, but I started to take that more seriously. When the pandemic started, I had a daily yoga practice with a group of other single mothers on Zoom that for a year or even more, every day, most of us would be meeting regularly to carry out a short yoga practice. That felt amazing. That year, I felt really good physically. I was doing Pilates. I was doing yoga. Felt good. Just felt good to express myself. 
Now, ever since I moved to Turkey over two years ago, I've also been working on things about my body. You know, I do different things for the sake of my body. I enjoy walking. I enjoy getting massages. I enjoy cuddling my son. I enjoy cuddling the cats. And I continue my somatic work. In fact, recently I even started with um, a new healing approach of somatic dialogue, working with a young Turkish woman who's helping me get into my body even more. This work never ends. And the more skills and methods and approaches I learn, the better able I'm able to bring, bring this into my life and share it with my clients as well. Now, what's been really powerful, the more I learn and embody my body, the more I step into my body and feel its presence, the more I can share with others. So the most powerful thing is learning to live through my body and not just my mind. The thing is, if you ever notice that when you're thinking and you're overthinking, it's hard to make a decision, you're always confused, you just like can't get clarity, you're bullying yourself, whatever it is, our minds are confusing, our inner critics are loud. It's hard to have self-compassion. The thing is with the body, it never lies. So our body is a much more trustworthy companion to have in learning to live our lives. Whereas our mind takes a lot of battling, you know, even in Sufism, we call it jihad and nafs. Our minds, our ego is all part of this intellectual side. Our body is a side that's the more natural side, the side that actually tells the truth. But the thing is, most of us modern humans can't read, we can't hear, we can't understand our bodies. So my advice to you is to learn how to read, listen to, and understand what your body is telling you. The more you can be within your body and listen to it, the more you'll have deeper intuition, the more you'll be able to make decisions that feel good to you, the more you'll walk through this world feeling confident, feeling attuned to your own energy, to that of others, to knowing what's good for you, what's not. What's really interesting how this connects to Islam is that, again, like I said, Islam is an orthopraxic religion. It's a religion that has a set of practices. Now, for example, you take Christianity, its practices in terms of prayer are not formulaic. Different Christians pray differently, right? Some are just uh, sitting and they can pray anywhere. The Catholics have a more formal way of praying, but there's not a set formula of how Christians uh, pray. Unlike Muslims who, wherever you go in the world, there's slight differences between Sunnis and Shia and other Muslims, but overall, all Muslims are going to have the same a uh, set of movements when they pray, the same way that they hold up their hand when they make du'a, when they make supplications. How beautiful is that? A Muslim can walk into a mosque, into a Muslim community anywhere in the world, and they'll be able to join it. The same goes mainly for Jews, uh, depending on what um, level of religiosity there are. Um, but for Muslims, it's amazing. I've been to mosques around the world, never need to worry about the prayer movements, I know it's going to happen with slight differences between Sunni and Shi practices and a few of the schools of law within Sunni uh, Muslims. So our religion is an embodied religion. We're commanded to move our bodies intentionally, mindfully five times a day if we so choose and if it's part of our daily practice. How beautiful is that? Literally, we have a commandment from God in the Quran to move our bodies, well, first of all, to purify our bodies with water, which is the universal way of purification, of cleansing one's mind and body. Then we make the intention, so we make intellectual intention, reminding our mind that we're going to be quiet now and focus on the body. And then we recite with our tongue some prayers in Arabic, some verses of the Quran, 
how we move our body in amazing ways, in ways that many of us know resemble yoga, asanas or positions, as many people like to talk about. The, the positions of salat, of prayer, are really remarkable, um, that a lot of healers and somatic practitioners who have nothing to do with Islam, who know nothing about Islam, recommend similar positions. You know, when we're on, when we're kneeling on the ground with our foreheads on the carpet or on the ground, our hands, we're in submission, just giving ourselves to God. What a beautiful act of submission it is. With our bodies, we're literally acting out what submission to God means. Rather than just praying like this, being on our ground, giving ourselves up to the divine, how beautiful is that? How beautiful would it be that if instead of prayers being mechanical and being um, having a sense of burden uh, that many Muslims associate with prayer, prayer seems so difficult for so many Muslims. Nearly every single Muslim I speak to struggles with carrying out their daily prayers. If you're a Muslim, you might relate to this. Right? Why is it so difficult? Why? Because the way we're taught about prayer, be it if you were born and raised as a Muslim or if you became a Muslim later on in your life as a young person or as an adult, we're taught about prayer intellectually. We're taught, here's the set of prayers. You do these movements, you pray. That's it. The thing is with Muslim scholars is that they're intellectuals. They're not embodied practitioners, right? But they're teaching us an embodied practice as well as just regular Muslims who teach their children. They're teaching us an embodied practice without teaching us the embodied part what it really means. Yes, we understand intention. It doesn't mean to pray with intention, with deep mindfulness. What it mean if before we started to pray, we did a very quick mindfulness breath practice? And what if while we're praying, we really took a moment to understand what it means, what each gesture, what each position means during our prayer practice? When we're doing this in a, in a raka, what does that mean? Or in sujood, what does that mean? Right? What if we really intentionally took this gentle approach, this mindful approach, that every moment of the prayer practice, our mind and body are in union, are in mindfulness, and we're in complete submission and attentiveness to the divine? What would that mean? So it might sound nice, right? nice to you, right? If you're a Muslim, like, yeah, it's really hard to pray. I enjoy it. And when I pray, I feel so good. Yeah, because you're doing this embodied practice, this somatic practice. You're reciting Quran and Arabic, which is a very healing practice. You're doing some physical movement. You're making attention. And the, the goal is to be mindful, right? That's what prayer is. It's mindfulness practice with some Arabic uh, prayers. It's nothing different than other prayer practices in other traditions. Now, the Quran recommends that Muslims pray. It doesn't they pray uh, throughout the day because what is it? A lot of Muslims pray because they've been told that if they don't pray, there's, there's dire consequences. So they should be scared of the fear of punishment of fire and brimstone. I used to have similar fears. I, I was taught by people who had these fears about prayer. And I was scared about if I ever stopped praying, what would happen? But what I've tried to do in the past years on my healing journey is that instead of being scared of prayer, I've tried to realize that this is a gift given to me by the divine. It's an age-old tradition that's been proven to work. I have a set of tools given to me. It's the same as any other somatic practices, but here I have some really ancient ones that are more than 1,400-year-old traditional practices. 
that resonate with me. I feel deeply drawn to prayer in Islam when it feels good. And the more I approach it with intentionality, the better it feels. So I've been given this gift. God doesn't need me to pray. God doesn't want me to pray for the sake of God. God doesn't need anything from me. But God gave us this act of prayer throughout the day because it helps us and us alone. No one benefits from us praying. No one except ourselves because it gives us this short break in the middle of the day, in the middle of this dunya, this material world, where we get to just commit and make our intention just to the divine and remembering the divine. What a gift that is. How beautiful that is. So my proposal is that we reframe our Sunday in prayer, connecting it to somatic work embodiment. And as I work on this more, as I have conversation partners who I speak about this with, as I journal about it, as I practice it myself and try out different things to see what feels best to what feel help to see what helps me feel the most present in a, in different ways of approaching this, it's really healing for me. Because there was a time that prayer was deeply beautiful and just gave me so much. And then there was a time that prayer felt mechanical and like a burden. And I'm really working, you know, there's a time that I did stop praying or I, I prayed minimally because it just didn't feel good anymore. I didn't know what to do. And now I'm working on having prayer feel good. And of course, not at all times it feels good, but I realize what a gift I have from the tradition I've chosen to be part of, a set of tools. Yes, we can take tools from other modern somatic practitioners, you know, people like Dr. Peter Levine, the founder of somatic experiencing practice, for example. But wow. What a gift we have, this ancient set of tools from Islam. And if you're Jewish or Christian or Buddhist or Hindu, you already have a set of, of uh, tried and true tools uh, for meditation, for mindfulness, for prayer, that if you approach them with a certain perspective, can be mind-blowing and body-changing. Just think about that for a moment. I think about more for a mo- more than a moment. I actually uh, invite you at the end of this episode, perhaps sit with yourself for a moment. Take some time to see how it felt for you to think about prayer and embodiment and what it means to be in your body, to listen to your body, to act in this world in a tune, attuned with your body. What would that be like? And if you're Muslim or from any other tradition, think about what would it mean to approach your prayer or mindfulness or meditation practice from a perspective of embodiment. Can you step into your practice in a more embodied way? What would that look like? What would that feel like? Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Do you have anything to share about your experience with embodiment and prayer and mindfulness? Are you looking for help bringing more compassion into your life and letting yourself out of the box and into the real you? I'd love to support you on your journey. Check out my one-on-one and group coaching offers and sign up for my mailing list to receive updates about my offers. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook under Dr. Rosa Slan Coaching or visit my website, CompassionFlow.com. Oh, 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 oh.